Amen. If you were here last week, you know, and if you weren't here last week, um, I want you to know that we have transitioned out of the polemical section of this letter into the more practical section. So we've moved out of Paul's argument into his practical application. We've moved from the indicative to the imperative. We've moved from the declarations to the life applications in this letter to the Galatians. And with that transition, uh, what we have decided to do is we've, we're taking a, uh, or we're in a three-part mini-series, so to speak, in this larger series in the book of Galatians. And we've entitled that The Life of a Christian. And last week we said that Paul, in those first 15 verses, said the life of a Christian is the life of freedom. And he said three things about freedom. First, he said that we were set free for freedom. And then we said while we've been set free from many other things, that he himself in this passage said that we were set free from the slavery of the curse of the law, the the, the yoke. Of the ceremonial law as well as the doctrines and commandments of men that were contrary uh, to the law itself. Especially in matters or in matters of faith and worship. And then lastly he said that we were set free to love and serve God. And love and obey God and love and serve one another. And we also took the time, particularly in our time of application, to look at or to uh, spend time discussing those two toxic threats to our freedom, which are legalism and license. And if you weren't here or you, um, and you haven't already, I would encourage you to go back and to listen uh, to that passage and to that sermon uh, because we can't hear enough about our freedom in Christ. We cannot hear it enough. Well, anyway, looking back in verse 13, Paul said that having been called to freedom, that we are to make sure that we don't use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. In other other words, we are, uh, or while our freedom is to be treasured, And guarded and protected. We shouldn't use it as a disguise for rebellion. Uh, We shouldn't use it as an excuse to do what we want to do. Uh, We shouldn't uh, use it in any other way other than what God intends for us to use it for. Uh, We've been set free and given the desire and the ability to do what He wants us to do. Not simply what we want to do. We've been set free and given the desire to do the right thing. Not just our own thing. And we're to do that right thing without being told to do it. And our freedom has not been granted so that we love and serve ourselves. But our freedom has been purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ. So that again, we might love and obey God and love and serve one another. And the question that arises out of that and the place where we stop was, how do we do that? What does that look like? How how do we live a life of freedom? How do we oppose those threats of legalism and license? How do we not use our freedom? How do we not use it for an opportunity for the flesh? How do we use it to love and serve one another? 
And I believe Paul answers those questions in verses 16 to 26. Because our life of freedom or our life as a Christian is not only a life of freedom. It's also a life of walking by the Spirit. Before we jump in, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for our time of worship. We thank you for your word that has been read and that we have heard. We thank you for the life that is present there. We thank you for how you have chosen to work through your word. And we would ask that you would continue to work as you intend through the preaching of it. And we would ask that you would change us. You would make us and mold us. In the process. I pray father that the word would be rightly divided. I pray father that. You would use it for your glory and our good. May we see Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So the life of a Christian is a life walking by the spirit. And there are four things that I mentioned to the children that we'll look at tonight. One is what it. What is walking or what isn't walking by the spirit or what walking by the spirit isn't what it is, what it looks like. And then how do we cultivate it? How, how do we um, how do we cultivate it? That's the best way to put that. Let's look first at what walking by the spirit isn't. And I begin there because there are a few things, you know, shall we say misconceptions that are out there that uh, many from other traditions kind of put forth and people buy into and. And that aren't really true when it comes to walking by the Spirit or in terms of the Spirit. And, and here are a few examples. One, walking by the Spirit is not this middle road between legalism and license. It, it's not a middle road. And, and of course, we want to stay out of those ditches. We talked about that last week. We don't want to be involved in legalism and we don't want to be involved in license. But I said, and almost in passing, that legalism and license are actually two sides of the same coin. Um, and they're both means by which we show forth our self-righteousness. And they're both, um, they show forth our low view of sin and a low view of the law. And so we don't want to be involved in either. We don't want, uh, we don't want to even be involved in any kind of combination between the two. We want to uh, stay away from either one of them. So again, walking by the Spirit is not this middle road. It's actually, in the words of E. Dewitt Burton, a highway above them both. And secondly, walking by the Spirit is not a life of asceticism. And what I mean by that is that asceticism is a way of life in which people renounce worldly pleasures and, and, and they devote themselves to lives of abstinence and extreme self-denial. And, and they do so in order to reach some sort of spiritual level that they don't believe that they can attain in any other way. And so they deny themselves things like certain foods and drinks and sleep and sexual intimacy or whatever else people give up for Lent. And thirdly, walking by the Spirit is not simply this intellectual exercise. It's not an intellectual exercise in which we just say no to sin. It's not an intellectual exercise in which we're just, you know, it's the power of positive thinking that we're going to bring things about. And it's also not this passive process where we like the bumper sticker and we just let go and let God. It's different than that. You see, what 
walking by the Spirit is begins in verse 16. Paul says very clearly, but I say walk by the Spirit. So first of all, walking by the Spirit is active. It's active because that that walk or that uh, that verb is a present tense verb and it speaks of this habitual action. It's always occurring. The idea is we're going to keep on walking. It's a life in which we are actively involved in what's going on. We're, we're participating. But it's, it's a life of responsive action. It's a life of voluntary cooperation. But we're, we're responding to having been acted upon. We've already been acted upon, we've been called, we've been purchased, we've been redeemed, we've been forgiven, we've been adopted, and we've been regenerated, we've been indwelt and sealed by the Spirit. And we are responding, the Spirit who now leads, we are to walk and to follow Him. It's also, if you notice, a life of assurance. In verse 16 again, he says, and you will not gratify So if we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify. It's not a command. It's a promise. It's a promise. There's a cause and effect. And and the promise is if we will walk by the Spirit, we're we're not going to complete or perform or accomplish something specific. And that something specific is, again, there in verse 16. We, We will not complete, perform, or accomplish the desires of the flesh. So walking by the Spirit is active. Walking by the Spirit um, is a life of assurance. And finally, walking by the Spirit is a life of antagonism. It's a life of antagonism. It's a life of conflict. Really, it's a life of war. One commentator put it this way, it's a fierce and unrelenting warfare to establish dominion over man's soul between two hostile forces that are diametrically opposed to one another. That's that's pretty intense. It's pretty significant. And those opposing forces, Paul says, are the spirit and the flesh. It's an ongoing battle. And so... When the Spirit regenerates us, we look at these two forces. When the Spirit regenerates us and indwells us, our heart is replaced. Our heart of stone is replaced. We have a new heart. We have a new spirit. And in other places, Paul says that that we we are a new man. There is a new spirit. There is a new self. And this transformation affects our thoughts. It affects our affections. It affects our wills and it affects our behavior. And this new heart and this new spirit, this new self strongly desires righteousness. This new self provokes us to obedience and good works. The new man, the new person responds to the spirit's prompting that leads to God glorifying decisions and actions. There is a way of life. And in this context, and again, as I mentioned to the kids, the context in which Paul is writing here, if we go back and see how how he's been talking about being free and set free to love. The life of the new self where the spirit generates a life that loves others. But the flesh, on the other hand, is completely different. 
The flesh is that residue, that leftover sin that remains in us even after our conversion. Paul calls it the old man. He calls it the old self. Uh, And at one time, that old self ran amok. It was unchecked. It was unhindered. And it affects our thoughts. It affects our affections. It affects our wills. It affects our behavior. It strongly desires to sin. It provokes us to sin. And it responds to the temptations that come from the world. It responds to the temptations that come from the enemy and Satan, the enemy Satan, and leads to actual sin. And in this context, it turns love inward. Right? Life in the spirit is love turned outward. Life in the flesh is love turned inward. And though Paul says that that old man and that old self and and sin has been crucified with Christ, it hasn't been eradicated or eliminated. It is a defeated foe. It no longer has power over us, but it continues to wreak havoc. But it no longer has dominion over us. And at some point over time, it will be slowly and surely it will wither and ultimately die upon our glorification. But for now it remains. And again, it wreaks havoc by opposing and clashing with the Spirit. And that's why Paul says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? A little bit. Romans 7. Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. A life of antagonism. But notice what Paul says in verse 18. He says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. He says, okay, all this being the case, this life of walking by the Spirit, active, a life of assurance and a life of antagonism. But remember, because you are led by the Spirit, you are free. Because you are led by the Spirit, you are free. In the midst of what's what's just really discouraging... Paul gives a glimpse of hope. He provides a a glimpse of hope. He says, I know you aren't doing what you want to do. And I know you're you're being kept from doing it because of the flesh within you. I get that. But just remember, if you are led by the Spirit, if the Spirit indwells you and has sealed you, you are free and the law cannot accuse you. The law cannot condemn you. You are free because of your faith in Christ who has redeemed you. And brothers and sisters, I want to pause here and and make sure we all understand that this life of of antagonism, this, this war, this back and forth, though frustrating and exhausting, is really good news for us. Because it's assurance of our salvation. It's assurance of our salvation. 
Non-Christians, non-believers don't have this internal battle going on because the Spirit is not present to provoke the flesh. It is only the Christian who has this internal battle going on. Therefore, our struggle with sin, the times of minimal and measurable progress of growth, And in the words of the name it and claim it bunch, uh, our lack of victory is not a reason. It's not a reason to doubt our salvation or for us to believe in some way that God's favor isn't upon us. Actually, it's just the opposite. Our struggle may be the most clear and definable assurance of our salvation there is. If I could be so bold I would take it a step farther and say that the more frustrated we are, the more frustrated we are at our lack of progress, the more sanctified we really are and are becoming. The more we understand how sinful we are, the more we understand of our need of Christ. And as that gap widens, the cross gets bigger. I'm not nearly as concerned about the salvation of those who, like Paul, are constantly at odds with themselves. Constantly at odds with themselves because they continue to do what they don't want and don't do what they should. I'm more concerned about those who don't struggle with sin at all. Those who don't struggle with sin and aren't at odds within themselves because they're either not a believer or they've fallen prey to what? Legalism or license. They've fallen prey to that. The toxicity of those things. Listen to our confession. They who are once effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, are further sanctified, really and personally, through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, by His Word and Spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified, and they more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practices of true holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. The assurance that's there in regards to who we are in Christ and our sanctification that's promised. But it also says this. This sanctification is throughout the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. There are abiding still some remnants of corruption in every part. Whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war. The flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. In which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part doth overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So this walk by the spirit is slow and it's steady. And it's yes, it's frustrating And it's wearisome, but it's something that is to continue. And we continue it with joy and hope because one day 
Christ will return. All will be made right. The battle will be over. Sin will be gone. And we keep pushing ahead in the meantime. Perfection is not ever going to be realized in this lifetime. It's not going to happen. And so we shouldn't, we should not look to ourselves and our own progress in, in becoming more holy as assurance of our salvation. If we want to be assured of our salvation, we should look outside of ourselves to the promises of Scripture, ultimately looking to Christ through whom those promises are all yes and amen. It is to Him that we look. And as a side note, that's why we should always desire to hear both the law and the gospel preached on a regular basis and not some sort of moralizing story or whatever else might be out there. Because we need to hear of our need and of the hope and truth of our redemption and our rescue. A rescue that was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We don't need to hear how we might strive for a better life. Because it just leads to frustration. So having interjected this bit of hope, Paul lays out a description of what this looks like. What does walking in the spirit look like? He says this, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Gentleness and self-control. Against these things there is no law. So how do we know which side is prevailing at any given time? Which side in this tug of war, in this, in this battle, this intense warfare that's going on? How do we know? Well, Paul says when, when the flesh or our sinful thoughts or our sinful affections or our sinful wills prevail, it re- results in sinful behavior. And, and he summarizes, really, he says these, these, this behavior involves sexual sins and religious sins and relational sins and sins of self-control. Right? Things like these. This isn't an exhaustive list. We've heard two other lists tonight already. And while it isn't exhaustive and it's meant only to be representative, again, as we read this list, what do we hear? Love turned in on ourselves. Every bit of it. Looking out for ourselves, loving and serving ourselves. And he says, I'm warning you as I have before, those who are habitually involved in these things, those who are walking this sort of life, constantly turned in on themselves, contrary to to God and His law and what He desires, they will not inherit and will not be partakers of the kingdom. Strong, bold language meant to warn. 
And then he does something really fascinating. He, he doesn't contrast the behaviors of the flesh with behaviors of the spirit. Uh, he contrasts the behaviors, plural, with the fruit, singular, of the spirit. He contrasts the deeds of the flesh with the fruit of the spirit. He contrasts the behaviors of those living in the flesh with the prevailing temperament and disposition of those who are in Christ, of those living by the spirit. And he lists nine of them. He says, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. But the root, again, the, the, the word fruit is singular. These nine are parts of a whole. And by describing them as fruit, he's really saying that these are more than simple traits or characteristics. He's saying this fruit, these are signs of life. They're signs of life. You who are dead are now alive in Christ. And the signs of those, the, the sign of that life is fruit. Fruit of the Spirit. And they're, because they're fruit, they're spontaneous, they are symmetrical, and they're sure. In other words, they're spontaneous in that they are natural byproducts of the vine. As I was mentioning to the kids... Right, they were quick to say acorns do not grow on blackberry bushes or vines. I think they're more bushes the more I think about it. But uh, acorns do not grow on it. Why? It's not a natural byproduct. Acorns are natural byproducts of oak trees. Blackberries are not natural byproducts of oak trees. They're natural byproducts of blackberry bushes. And those on the vine, they, they grow together on that vine. And that growth, that growth is sure. It, it, it's inevitable. And, and I know human illustrations fall short because, you know, there could be a drought and so forth like that. But you understand what I'm saying. They grow together. I was talking to Aaron beforehand and, and it just, it struck me this afternoon. That we do a grave disservice to ourselves and to our children when we talk about the fruit of the spirit in terms of fruit cocktail. In other words, because... And what are, what are the pictures? A banana and an apple. And, and, and I know some of you have done this with your kids. And I'm not getting on anybody. I'm saying we did it too. So I'm just saying, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about it today. We've done a disservice because it, it's not a matter of an apple, an orange, a banana, a kiwi. Because what, is that, what does that say? That they're separate. And so what happens is, you know, Hans has got a banana. And Aaron's got an apple. Right? And Wes has, has got one thing and Anna's got another. And, 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 and what do we do? We start speaking in terms of the gifts rather than fruit. Paul says in the book of Corinthians that we're all given a gift. At least one. We all don't have the same gift Nobody in this room contain, uh, has all of the gifts, right? But the fruit of the Spirit, everybody in this room has them all because they're singular. They're not an apple, an orange, a banana, and a pineapple. They're all blackberries. 
on the same vine, growing together. To use a, a biblical illustration, they're all grapes on a grapevine. They're all tapped into the same vine. And as Aaron pointed out, you know, in, in blackberry bushes, you know, they, they die. If, if I don't cut them down, they die in, in the winter. And they come back. And so what's important about blackberry bushes or grapevines is they have to be cultivated and nurtured so that that fruit comes forth. And the, the, younger, the younger the vines, right, what happens, the younger the vines, the more... Bitter the fruit might be originally, but over time, what happens to those vines as they're nurtured, they produce really sweet, wonderful fruit. And that's what Paul's talking about. We've all been given the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. And so they aren't, listen, they aren't something that we have to pray for. What did Paul say in Ephesians 1? We've all been given every spiritual or we've, we've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The fruit of the spirit is ours. Our desire should be to appropriate what we've been given. To do and and and, and again, not to go and do. This is a natural byproduct. This is a temperament. This is a disposition. The call isn't to run out and go be kind. Or to run out and go be patient. These are natural outworkings of a life in the Spirit. It's the Spirit who causes those things to grow. And by God's grace, we exhibit those things. And Paul says that when we do, the law no longer, uh, which no longer binds us is actually fulfilled. Why? Because the fruit... Is love, it exhibits itself in love turned outward. And we love God, who is the giver of that fruit. We love and serve, love and obey Him, and, and that fruit as we exhibit it is turned outward, and we love and serve one another. The law is fulfilled. Now, that wasn't a part of what I was going to do. I told you that hit me this afternoon, so we need to go quickly through this last point. How is it cultivated? How is the life cultivated? Look at verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So, uh, four things quickly. The second one has two. So there's really three things and there are two subpoints under the second one. First of all is this. Paul says to cultivate this kind of life, we need to, uh, as we're going to live, um, as, as we go to uh, attempt to live by the Spirit and walk by the Spirit, uh, we must rest in the fact that we belong to Christ. He says that immediately. And those who belong to Christ. We've been called, justified, adopted. We have been uh, sanctified, are being sanctified. We will be glorified. We've been united to Christ by the Spirit. He's purchased it all. We are His. We are not our own. And the Spirit is our guarantee of that. The Spirit has been given to us as a guarantee of that. And when we are united with Christ, when we were united to Him, we were united to both His death and His life. Therefore, our sinful, that sinful nature, that sinful thoughts and desires and affections were all crucified with Him. 
They no longer have power and dominion over us. We at one time who were unable not to sin, things have changed. We are now, we are now able to not sin. Did I say that right? Okay. I always get confused with those things. We who are unable to not sin are now able to not sin. Because of the Spirit within us. And so it begins by remembering who we are in Christ. Who we are. We belong to Him and keeping that ever before us. Secondly, Paul says we are to keep in step. And to keep in step is not just a matter of not doing. It's also a matter of doing. Remember, it's active. And so there's, there is more to it than simply obeying. I've tried to clarify that in the beginning. But, but there is still an element of obedience. So, that, and that comes, that, that, that's a matter of striving or actually walking with and live, living by the Spirit. And there are two facets to that. And the first is we must take advantage of the means of grace. We must take advantage of the means of grace. The preaching of the Word, the sacraments, fellowship and prayer. Listen to the language of our uh, larger catechism, uh, answers 155 and 162. It's through these means... It's through these means of grace that Christ has chosen to communicate the benefits of his work on our behalf. It is through them that we are convinced of and humbled by our sin and drawn to Christ, that we are conformed into his image, that we are strengthened against temptations and corruptions, that our hearts are established in holiness and comfort as our faith, and all our graces are strengthened and increased. Brothers and sisters, I can't, I can't overstate the importance of the means of grace And the necessity to be a part of a gathering like this on a regular basis. When I I encourage you to be here, it's not so that our average attendance will go up. I, I promise. It's because you need to be here. I need to be here. I need you to be here. Because of what the Lord does in our midst when we gather. This is His ordained means of our spiritual growth. And we we should not neglect it. So if we're going to walk in the Spirit, live by the Spirit, we need to avail ourselves of the means of grace. And secondly, we must also be actively involved in the mortification of our sin or putting it to death. That is also an active process. Listen to Paul in Romans 8. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So there's an active participation in this, putting our sin to death. And and we don't have time, unfortunately, uh, really a lot of. I wasn't going to have time before, but I'm really not going to have time um, with what I added so late. Um, I've ordered several copies of John Owen's book, Mortification of Sin. And they'll be on the table next week. And I'd encourage you to grab it and spend some time in it. Um, But because we are talking about living and walking by the Spirit, let me just say uh, simply... Uh, that this putting to death of our sin, it, it, we are to pursue, that, that we're to pursue, still remains a work of the Spirit. Okay? It, it's still the Spirit working in us. Uh, to quote Owens, 
He says the spirit alone convicts the heart of sin. He reveals the fullness of Christ, bolsters our heart to expect relief, brings the cross of Christ into our hearts, is the author and finisher of our sanctification and supports the soul's petitions to God. We are actively involved, but we are relied upon the spirit to do the work that needs to be done. And thirdly, finally, rest, strive. And finally, Paul says we must remain humble. We must remain humble as this takes place. Verse 26, he says, keeping in step can in and of itself become a hindrance. And it can become a hindrance because of the sin within us. I mean, here's what's so funny. As as we put sin to death, sin then turns around and raises its ugly head and we start comparing ourselves to one another. Well, I'm putting my sin better to death better than you are. And we compare, our, we compare ourselves to one another. We compete against each other. We begin to envy one another because I'm doing things that you're not. And I become proud. Or you're doing things that I'm not. And I begin to envy you. And, and Paul says, don't do that. Remember, you're not doing it. The spirit within you is doing it. So don't become conceited. Don't become, become uh, to, to envy one another. Because then what happens? All of a sudden we begin to embrace legalism, which Paul's been fighting for since the beginning. And we see the toxic nature of that. And, brothers and sisters, we need each other. We need each other to do this. And so we can't be causing the division between us when we need each other to bring it about. But that's for next week. Let's pray together. Father, how gracious you are to us.